We'll be looking at uh, Matthew 6 and Mark 4 today. Now it's a little difficult, so you'll have to, I don't know, use a couple of fingers to hold those spots, uh, but I think you can manage. Um, I'm not really sure how much time I might have left with you, so I've decided to break away from 1 Corinthians for a little bit and uh, hit some of my uh, favorite Bible passages. And so today uh, we're going to look at Matthew 4, I mean Matthew 6 and Mark 4. Uh, and what they have to say about anxiety. Uh, this isn't everything to say about anxiety. I mean, hardly. Uh, but I hope uh, some helpful and important things. So we'll start with Matthew 6, verses 25 to 32. And then we'll go to Mark 4, 35 to 41. Matthew 6, 25 to 32. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith! Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then turn over to Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Dear Almighty God, these are familiar passages to us, but we pray that Your Holy Spirit would make them to resonate with us anew, and that You would press upon us the truth of these passages. Help us to grow in confidence in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Anyone ever been anxious before? 
Oh, come on. It, it, it's okay, all right? It, it's something we all kind of get, and anxiety is a bear. I hate it. Uh, at the same time, I feel like it's, it's, it's everywhere around me. Uh, sometimes I feel like it's my superpower. I can be anxious about anything. And if any of you didn't raise your hand and you're struggling with that, I can help you discover what you could be anxious about. Um, and at the same time, I suspect uh, that for most of you, maybe all of you, you feel like it's your superpower too. Anxiety is in the air that we breathe. A recent article on Psychology Today reported that we are in the midst of an anxiety of an anxiety epidemic. New York Times, in an article entitled "An Anxious Nation," noted this. Anxiety is starting to seem like a sociological condition, a shared cultural experience that feeds on alarmist CNN graphics and metastasizes through social media. Good, huh? In other words, significant anxiety is becoming such a uniform part of the world that we live in that it is becoming normal. And yet, interestingly, that's not new, because in this same article by this New York Times author, he notes that the poet W.H. Auden published The Age of Anxiety with respect to his own generation 70 years ago. It was interesting to me just looking through the uh, Trinity hymnal for uh, hymns that might deal with anxiety. There are a ton of hymns dealing with anxiety. We could sing hymns on anxiety for, for just the whole service, for a lot of services. Amen, right? Okay. And, um, and funny thing here, anxiety is what the disciples are struggling with. And so we're anxious people. We've always been anxious people. You can take it right back to the garden if you want to. But anxiety stinks. It doesn't feel so much like a superpower as a debilitating disease. We would love to throw off our anxiety. And that's why I like these passages so much. They're, they're both real and they offer a great deal of hope and I think help for anxious people. And so that's what I want us to consider today. First, we can see two aspects of how anxiety works on us. Firstly, it seems logical. In Matthew 6, they're anxious about what they might wear or eat, and so we might wonder, well, are they anxious because they're not sure which restaurant to go to to get the best food for their dollar, or are, are they worried about what they're going to wear so that they look the best for their friends? And of course, that's not the case, but they're actually concerned about getting cold and then freezing, or hungry and then starving. In other words, their anxieties are based on completely reasonable concerns. It's the same with the disciples on the boat. They're, they're not wrestling against an irrational fear of water, but these men are very familiar with water, are fearful that this storm that looks like it could take their lives may in fact take their lives. And that means the fears that are driving their anxieties aren't irrational, or at least not innately irrational, but they seem completely logical. It's one of the main reasons that anxiety is so powerful at some level it makes sense. And so it makes us feel like we have to do something about it. And yet, 
The next feature makes us feel all the more so. Secondly, anxiety is progressive. In Matthew 6, what begins as a potential lack of clothing or food moves quickly on to the prospect of feeling cold and hunger, to the certainty that we will starve and freeze. And from there, the feverish search for a remedy. In other words, what started as a mere hypothetical becomes life or death right now. And it was likewise that way for the disciples on the boat. Their response wasn't Jesus. Do you think we should be concerned about this storm? Or amongst one another, man, that's a bad storm, but it's a good thing that we're here with Jesus. But instead, verse 38 Do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, their anxieties have not only assured them that they're going to die, but the Lord doesn't even care if they do die. And in that way, we can see that anxiety never sits still. It's always working to harden our initial fears into the certainty of our worst ones. And those Worst ones are often very far removed and irrationally related to the logical ones that we may have started with. And so point two, where does anxiety come from? Interestingly, while anxiety is definitely something we experience in the present, and you all raised your hands, it comes from how we look at the future. It's the painful consequence of having a hope for the future but not the power to make sure that future happens. And you can track these two elements wherever you're feeling anxiety. The tighter our grip on a certain hope or desire for the future, or the lesser our perception that we can control making that happen, the higher our anxiety or vice versa. And that's again what you see in both of these passages. They're neither cold hungry or dead yet, but in their realization that they don't have the power to protect themselves against these things, anxiety ensues. And the more they think about that, the more and more they get anxious. And so what do we do? Well, normally we worry more. And that in turn hardens the previous fear, makes it appear bigger and even more urgent, and so we worry even more, right? And yet, it doesn't help. In fact, it doesn't help at all. And no matter how much more we worry about it, it still won't help. It won't help. That's what Jesus is getting at in his question in Matthew 6, verse 27. He says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And we know the answer to that. None of us can. And why? Well, not just because worrying in itself is is a powerless exercise, but because the thing we're trying to control is beyond our control. That's his point. And so point three, what's the solution? Controlled breathing techniques, yoga, journaling, the distance principle, mindfulness, CBT, another therapy. Perhaps you could add another solution. There's as many books on anxiety and solving that problem as there are on uh, how to make yourself great in the bookstore. There are a ton of possible solutions out there. 
And, and many of them genuinely can deliver some help. But that's not where Jesus goes. He says, Mark 4, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In Matthew 6, verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It means the deeper root behind our anxiety problems is not improper breathing or journaling or distancing or mental preparation, but a lack of faith. And therefore, the solution, the deeper solution, is faith. And yet, what kind of faith? Well, it's captured here in the disciples' uh, paradigm-shifting reaction or response to Jesus' miraculous peace be still. Mark 4.41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It means that biblical faith is grounded in and centered on the reality of Christ. The fundamental difference between their little faith and their more faith responses has to do with how much they trust Christ or don't trust Christ. And that's the same thing we see in Matthew 6. Their weak faith-rooted anxiety stems from how little they trust that the God who creates, sustains, and disposes of lilies knows what they need, has the power to deliver it, and cares for them even more than lilies. And that's why this faith is such a powerful antidote to our anxiety. It's because the very future we are so anxious about, because we don't have the power to make it happen, Christ does have the power to make it happen. And more than that, He knows what we need better than we do. And He loves us more than we do. It's hard to imagine, because we really love ourselves. To put it another way, our future is exceedingly better and more secure in His hands than it could ever be in ours. And that's good news. It's a reality that ought to cause our anxiety to calm immediately, just as fast and completely as that storm responded to Jesus' command. And yet there's something else here that seems like an even greater encouragement to me. It's that this one who knows what we really need and holds our future in his hands loves us even though he knows us. I don't know if you know what I mean, but but just think about how many times our anxiety as Christians comes because we're ashamed of how little we've trusted in the Lord or lived for the Lord. And in the face of that shame, the only thing we feel like we can be certain of is that we can't count on the full measure of the Lord's care. And so what do we do? Well, we anxiously and independently of the Lord strive to make up the difference to ensure our future kingdom come. But as we can see here, as much as the disciples' anxiety is a product of their own weak faith, God, interestingly, still fully loves, clothes, feeds, and calms the storms in their lives while they have that weak faith. 
In other words, even though we're not who we ought to be, even though we've sinned against the Lord in the past, even though we've sinned against the Lord today, even though we will sin against the Lord tomorrow, the Lord knows that, and He still loves us. And so why? Because our actual security isn't based on how we feel in a given moment. And if you were just to think about your moments for a minute, that would be a terrible thing. But it's based on the eternally steadfast love of Christ. And that's why Paul is so excited about it. That's what he's so excited about in Romans 8, 38. He says, for I am sure sure, certain, secure, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers or things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able. It's impossible for them to separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. And that means despite what our anxiety screams in our ears or even our anxiety over the anxiety about the weakness of our own faith, we can receive Jesus' command to the storm as a command to the anxiety storm in our own hearts. Peace be still. Be still and know that I am God. And that's good news. And so what do we take away from this? Well, it really depends on where you are today. If you're not a Christian today, for instance, then you should be anxious You see, until you acknowledge where you stand as a sinner before God and entrust yourself by faith to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, your future is frightening, and in fact, even more frightening than you've ever imagined or considered or been anxious about. And therefore, that painful, logical, and progressive feeling of anxiety is actually a reminder or a foretaste of that fact. But the good news is that you don't have to stay here. Jesus came to save sinners. And so stop hiding, stop running, stop chasing your anxieties, and instead repent. Repent of your unbelief and entrust yourself to the God who promises to love you in Jesus Christ and receive true peace. On the other hand, if you're a Christian, an anxious Christian, And I caught you at the beginning. You all raised your hands. You don't need to be anxious. Peace be still is for you. Your heavenly Father loves you. He's got you. And in that way, well, there's genuinely, we're we're bags of chemicals. That's how God made us. There's some who are more predisposed to anxiety. Our anxiety can also be evidence of a little faith or a sinful relapse into self-reliance and unbelief. And that's what we need to take away from this. Anxious Christians also need to repent of their unbelief and learn to trust God more. And so, how are you doing with that today? How far do what-ifs, perfectionism, and general fear about the future of relationships, finances, children, Add your own thing, plague your present. I think for almost all of us, the answer is too much. We know God's out there, but we're not sure where. 
or whether he really knows what we need, or, or worse, whether he agrees with us about what we think we need. And so in that apparent silence, we indulge our weak faith-rooted anxieties. We give up on prayer. We compromise our values. We take matters into our own hands. We get angry. We push away anything or conquer anything that could threaten the, the realization of our anxieties. And so, how do we grow? Well, it's hard. And for every one of you who has really taken this to heart of that, that, uh, that mesh between faith and anxiety, you know that it's an all-your-life journey. But unbelief seems to give way to belief the more we learn to trust Christ for who He is, what He's done, and what He's promised to do. That's what seems to happen for the disciples here in their transition from little to greater faith in each of these passages. And it's, it's something that occurred to me recent, recently um, when I was reading a short story by Leo Tolstoy. And so just as a warning, uh, it's a little long, but it was such a, a great picture of this, and it had such a strong impression of me, in me, on me that, that I hope that sharing it with you will be helpful. It's about an angel named Michael that God sent down to earth to collect the soul of a young woman. The problem was that when he got there, he got anxious and doubted the Lord. When Michael arrived at this woman's home, he realized that she had given birth to two baby girls, and she realized that he was there to take her away. So she anxiously went about pleading with him to let her stay and take care of her babies. She explained that her husband had been killed only days before in a logging accident and that she was all that they had left. If she were taken too, they would certainly perish. And so Michael consented and he returned to heaven without her soul. But when he reported it back to the Lord, that thing that the Lord didn't know about, instead of likewise consenting, the Lord sent him back to complete the work and on top of that to learn three lessons the first, what dwells in man. The second, what is given to man. And the third, what man lives by. So Michael returned and he carried the woman's soul away to heaven. But as he went, his wings grew weak and he fell back down to earth. And he awoke to find himself in the form of a man. So the first time he was alone, naked, hungry, and cold, and he grew anxious. He thought about the fact that he had failed the Lord. He wondered if his punishment would ever end, or if he would even survive this very night. But, but after he had been there for a while, a man began to walk by. It was a poor shoemaker. He had nothing. But when he noticed Michael, he too grew anxious. He grew anxious because he couldn't imagine how he could possibly help another person. And so he tried to unnotice Michael. Ever done that before? But before he had been able to press on very far, his conscience struck him and he turns back around. And for some reason, he gave what little he had in order to help him. He wrapped his own coat around him and he took him into his own home and his work. And he said, and as he did, Michael smiled. Because Michael realized that God here was showing him the answer to the first lesson. What dwells in man is love. 
and he was grateful. From there, years passed, and Michael became quite a skilled shoemaker. But on a certain day, a wealthy nobleman visited their shop. He showed them the finest leather that they had ever seen. And he said, if you can make this leather into boots that will last a full year, I will pay you a handsome reward. But if you, if you fail, then I will have you flogged and thrown into prison. So again, the shoemaker was anxious. The reward was great, but he didn't know how he could possibly guarantee that the shoes would last that long. But for some reason, Michael smiles. He encourages the shoemaker to accept the work. He does, and then Michael goes to work on it immediately. But when the shoemaker arrives the ne- awakes the next morning, he notices that Michael has made the wrong kind of shoes. Instead of boots, he's made slippers. That's a pretty bad mistake. And so the shoemaker was beside himself with anxiety. Michael never made mistakes. How could he make his first and be it, it be so huge and at the worst possible time? There's no way that they could replace the leather, and the man would return soon, so surely they would die. And just then, a knock came at the door, but when the shoemaker opened it, it wasn't the nobleman, but his messenger. He informed them that his master had died in the night. So instead of boots, his widow would like the leather to be made into slippers so that he could be buried in them. And so, to his great surprise, the shoemaker turned back to Michael, retrieved the slippers, and handed them to the messenger. And so, Michael smiled again. Because when the nobleman had come, he'd noticed that one of his fellow angels was with him to collect his soul. And so there he realized the answer to the second lesson. It is not given to man to know what he needs. And just then a woman came to the door to have shoes made for two little girls. And at this, Michael smiled a third time, for he recognized the two little girls. They were the very twins he had left at their mother's breast those many years ago, and they were, as it turns out, doing quite well. And so Michael learned his final lesson. Man does not live by his care for himself, but by love. Or to put it another way, man lives by the God who loves him, who knows exactly what he needs, and who has the power to carry it out. That's what Michael learns here, and it's what we need to learn again, and more and more as well. Contrary to what our anxieties tell us, we don't always know what we need. We're certain that we do, but we don't. We don't have the power to carry it out, even though we strive so hard hard on the assumption that we do. And it doesn't ultimately depend on us, but all these things on the all-powerful God who knows us, who loves us in Jesus Christ. And that's where we need to go. That's where we have to go in our anxiety, because He's got us. And as we grow in trusting Him, we will experience more and more of His peace, a peace that surpasses all our understanding. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we confess that we are an anxious people, and we pray, Lord, that You would help us to see Christ who He is, what He has done, and what He has promised for us, and to know that our God who loves us is faithful, that He's got us. And in in that, Lord, that, that command that You gave to the storm, peace be still, 
and the immediate calm that fell on the seas. A great calm that we would experience by your Holy Spirit, that calm in our lives. And from there, Lord, we would live abundantly faithfully with all our heart, with all we are for you because you have made our feet secure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.